Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome Dr. Rania Awad, a practicing psychiatrist based at the Stanford University School of Medicine. She's a clinical associate professor in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and also the director of the Stanford Muslims and Mental Health Lab, where she mentors and oversees multiple lines of research focused on Muslim mental health. Rania, welcome to the SASPOD. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for asking. Now, I already said quite a lot about you in the introduction, but please start us off by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Happy to do so. I am, a, as you said, a psychiatrist here at Stanford, um, and I've you know, had a very interesting route of how I ended up in psychiatry in the first place, which mm -hmm. speaks a little bit about my background. Uh, prior to medicine, I'd actually studied Islamic law and theology more formally, classically in Damascus, um, although I had been you know, raised here in the US, but I had had this journey um, to you know, overseas to study and to really explore um, the faith and really was dedicated to that work. Um, but in the, in, the, in the pursuit of wanting really wellness and health for particularly the women and girls that I was working with, I decided to pursue medical studies and eventually that led me to psychiatry. Wow. You know, these, this, these two worlds that maybe sometimes don't seem like they, you know, really uh, intertwine well ended up being both part of my path. Um, I think what we're going to try and do today is talk about how these two worlds do intertwine. So can you, can you say more? Um, you, I know that you have, have spoken and written about integrating Islamic ideas into the mental health process. Can, can, can we talk more about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, you know, while I was going through my psychiatric training, I had intended, I mean, really that's what drew me to the work in the first place is knowing that, you know, in my community, the Muslim community, that there were many people who I felt could really benefit from, um, you know, mental health and psychiatric and psychological wellness as with every community. Let me just make that very clear. Um, but there was just right. there were so many, you know, barriers and there's a lot of stigma involved. And it just led me to wonder, like, what is it that I could help with to kind of bridge the two worlds, kind of bring down this, these, these hurdles that people are facing. Um, and the reason I should clarify this too, because of that training that I had with the Islamic training and background, um, I was very much doing grassroots community work, teaching in the community. And when that happens, you know, especially if you're kind of giving religious counsel and advice, people tend to come to you to ask their questions about life. And very quickly, I realized beyond the textbook knowledge that I had learned, <laughs> there was a lot of real life situations and questions that I just simply wasn't equipped to handle. So for me, it really felt like not only did I want to bring this mental health world to the community, but I also felt it was really important to bring the community values, Islamic values, 
into the counseling itself because it just felt very secular and it felt mm-hmm. very devoid of spirituality. And there were many in my community who that was actually their barrier for getting help and seeking care because yeah. they just felt like it did not really speak to them. Right. Oh, that is, uh, I can well imagine, and I'm sure we'll find out a little bit more as we continue speaking. Um, when you mentioned um, bringing a spiritual component, it's so let me just zoom out a little. We're talking about your work in the United States, right? We are at this point in the, okay. So, so that, that, okay. I just wanted to clarify before asking my next question, because uh, so when you were talking, I was thinking um, that, um, as you are well aware, yoga and to some extent Ayurveda have been brought into quote unquote Western health approaches, including mm-hmm. mental health, in a repackaged way, but also harking back to their own traditions. So, do you feel that there are Islamic traditions that could be similarly beneficial? And if so, would they then have to be appropriated in the same way as, for example, yoga? And and does this apply to the Muslim community, but also to other communities as well. Lots of questions. I'm sorry. Lots of questions, but I love this. This is probably, this is such a favorite topic of mine. I think. Great, I really let's enjoy, do it. <laughs> I enjoy this topic so much um, because the answer in short is yes, there are so much, there's so much to bring and draw from Islam that could really benefit all, not just Muslims. But what I'll first say is um, to your question about, you know, something like yoga, which we know, you know, originally had a very, comes from an original spiritual tradition, right? Right. There's beyond just the the health, um, the health benefits that come out of yoga, which are well-documented now. There is also in its original form, a lot of spirituality that was tied into it, that today, oftentimes in the way it's practiced here in the West, it's lost right? That that from originally from the Hindu tradition, right. that loss, it, it loses that spiritual value. And also, um, I might even call it, you know, not just secularization of the yoga, but also sanitization <laughs> of this practice. And um, that I worry about, because that while there are similar things within the Islamic faith, definitely, I think what brings it um, what really makes it very uh, helpful is the fact that it's still tied to its spiritual origins. And for many, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean, you know, another example, com- if we compare it, we use two main examples in Western psychology today, modern psychology, you have yoga as a practice, mm-hmm. originally coming from Hindu roots, and then you have the, um, the uh, meditation practices originally coming from Buddhist roots, right, from Buddhism. And you see that both have been very much secularized today but are very highly used and prescribed and now are considered to be evidence-based in their practices, right, of their benefits, both physically and mental health-wise. And I always say this, it's really important because from the people that I work with, they very much feel that they ask all the time, where are the indigenous practices to the Muslim faith that Mm -hmm. feel genuine or feel authentic? Mm-hmm. Because some of the other practices work, we know they work, but they just don't feel as authentic to that community. Mm-hmm. And that's been part of my, you know, the years of research now really pulling from original and primary kind of sources of Islam to figure out what exactly did the people before us, who, who by the way, um, maybe we'll get to this in the conversation, had an incredibly rich history related to mental health and a lot of actual progress related to the very um, therapies and techniques that were um 
integrated with Islam, but also known to work quite well for mental health purposes and practiced over centuries and centuries. So today we're kind of doing this rediscovery, Mm. you know, brushing off the dust of time, you know, bringing back to the forefront, the very practices that had always been there for a long time, but whether it's for, whether it's just the sake of like people kind of, um, you know, whether because of immigration or because of colonialization or because of just many different things that have happened between the Muslim world and the Western world today, you know, things have been lost. We've lost things in translation, things have fallen through the cracks. Most Muslims, when you walk up to them today and ask them, do you know a whole lot about mental health and Islam? They'll say, what? There's a connection between the two. (laughs) They themselves may have lost a lot of that history. So, you know, there's a lot of really exciting work to do here. And yes, I do think very much that it can be work that will benefit the Muslim community, but also beyond it. And then do you worry, you said it already a little bit, that that there is a concern that it's beyond the Muslim community, it would have to be repackaged or in in some way. How, How can you control that? So I'll, yeah, I'll give an example of, of what I mean. So, and, and probably meditation is a, a, a simple enough one to compare to. Mm-hmm. So kind of like how today we might've changed the very cues that we tell our clients or patients um, of how to practice mindfulness meditation, right? We're in the original kind of uh, religious um, and spiritual practice of it. There were very specific words and concepts that you would use. Today, a lot of that's been sanitized away and rather it's kind of transformed into, you know, something that everybody can really say or or be mindful about. If I give a similar example from the Muslim tradition, you have a concept called tafakkur, which basically translates into contemplative meditation. I mean, literally the word contemplation is tafakkur. And it has a specific way of practice where you're kind of thinking about, you know, your role in the world, your relationship with the divine and your relationship with all the other humans and in people and in your surrounding and um, really kind of putting things back into perspective. And there's a lot of contemplative work that happens in that meditative process. And why, and this is an example where I think everybody can benefit from this. But if we take away fully, fully the spiritual practice of it as well, everything including from like how you do this and where you sit when you do this and what you're saying when you do this, it will change. Right. There will be some change there. So I, I would hate to see a complete kind of sanitization of the original spiritual practice. Right. Uh, fair enough. And and um, yeah, when you were talking about language, I was thinking about the way that the word namaste has been used, reused, repackaged, and I'm sure our audience members will fully uh, understand what I'm referring to. It's, it's something that's deeply problematic and um, subject for a whole nother discussion. Um, before I, w- I want to ask you more about mental health, but before I do that, um, you use the term evidence-based, uh, which always makes me a little nervous um, because I find it um, well. Anyway, never mind what I find. Uh, tell me more about evidence-based and what you mean by it, and but what also what the larger medical community means by it. Definitely, yeah, it is. It's a, it's definitely um for, for some it is a, a bit of a thorn in their side. <laughs> um, what it means for the larger medical establishment is that when there is a specific treatment, let's use let's use that as an example here, a treatment, we would want to make sure that it's evidence based, as in to say that if we put we give this treatment, whether it be a medication or a therapeutic practice or anything like that, to one group 
that we would be able to replicate it again with another group and again and again and again, and be able to prove that this medication or this therapy, um, regardless of who you're using, well, there may be differences, small ones, but over a number of different people, different demographics and over time, that this actually is a type of treatment that works. So therefore it becomes evidence-based. And there are certain things that you know, are amenable to evidence-based practice, particularly as we talk about neuroscience, let's say. Like if I'm going to repeat an MRI scan, an fMRI, where I'm looking at functional, you know, um, uh, a functional MRI of the brain, and I keep repeating it over and over across hundreds and thousands of patients, then yes, it would be you know, relatively easy eventually to say, this part of the brain does this action, right, over time. And it becomes sort of an evidence-based thing. However, there are other parts of our work, particularly in the field of psychiatry and psychology, where it's not very amenable to necessarily that replicating over and over, especially when you start to bring in more subjective measures, like the discussion of the psyche and the soul and spirituality, which for many, that is actually why they have rejected that part of, you know, what actually was originally some of the very foundational work of psychology had the soul and the psyche as part of it. And then this was sort of like taken away over time because it couldn't be proven evidence-based. But many have also argued and said that that meant that psychology lost its soul. Mm. <laughs> Literally speaking. And this is a hot debate. I mean, this goes back and forth quite a bit because there are things that are very amorphous that are not easily replicated, let's say in a lab or in a research study or so on. But we know it contributes to the holistic well-being of people. And I think faith and spirituality is core to that discussion. And for people from faith communities, they'll tell you like, if you leave faith out of the picture or what we say in the field, we say, you know, checking God at the door, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It is really, really difficult to, to build that rapport and get the kind of help that's needed because for them, they actually live their life based on a set of morals and values and religious beliefs and practices that have an origin to them. And in a very, very secularized place, it's not very easy to talk about that or if it's going to be blamed, right? Right. That's so that that's how I have heard evidence based, quote unquote, used um, is in a, a Western um, global health context. And so it really then becomes code for, quote unquote, Western medicine, as opposed to these other medicines that are apparently not evidence based. To me, begs the question, what evidence are you looking for? And um, and I think you're also uh, uh, referring here, referencing here to the kind of dogma between science and religion that um, that came up on, on a podcast I recently did with Vivek Tana, who's an undergraduate at Stanford. And we talked about that, exactly that. So uh, it's wonderful to see it looping back to uh, this conversation as well. Mental health is not a topic that um, I think anybody super freely talks about. Um, and um, I think maybe for younger generations, it's becoming a little easier, it's becoming a little bit more accepted that physical health and mental health kind of go together and that it's okay to have mental health challenges. I think um, older generations struggle more with being open about that. And I imagine there's a cultural component as well. So can you speak to mental health stigmas if they exist and how that plays out in the Muslim community? 
Oh, sure, definitely. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would agree with your statement that the younger generation, uh, they're not completely absolved of this either, but they um, they do seem to be doing better. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I mean, even just the last 10 years, or even, even just the last five years, there's been an immense change, a real culture change, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, where you have people who are celebrities and athletes and people who are, you know, people look up to actresses and actresses. I know people who like are just, you know, who are in the limelight and are now openly speaking about their, their mental health challenges or very openly saying, and I see a therapist or my therapist said, you know, and that just gives, it normalizes the conversation and it gives people the ability to say, huh, maybe I can go see a therapist too. Or if they're seeing one to also maybe say to others, their loved ones around them say, I'm seeing a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. And not have it be such a taboo. Yeah. And that's the biggest change that I'm seeing. And, and, I, and I welcome that change. I think it's important. You're absolutely right that like, uh, like most communities, um, mental health uh, stigma still exists very much so in the Muslim community too. What really bothers me about that is the fact that we have this, you know, Muslims have this like incredible heritage related to mental health and well-being and all of this really early works that had um, really set the stage for what then became later Western psychology, Western Eurocentric kind of psychology. There were roots prior to that in the Muslim world. And, you know, we have yet to fully kind of connect the dots between them, but I'm sure over time with our research, we'll be able to do just that. Um, and it just bothers me to no end because I feel that if any community should be ready to embrace the mental health discussion, it should be the very community in which within their own faith, it kind of you know, encourages this. And in addition, that it actually, um, there was this incredible history related to it. So clearly the nobles, the, the, the noble predecessors, if you will, of the Islamic um, civilization had no qualms with mental health. Mm. They developed the very first psychiatric hospitals in the world. You know, you don't do that in a vacuum or accidentally. That's because there's something built in within the very faith and tradition that allows for that kind of growth. Can you say a little bit more about that history? Because I'm sure most of us are not familiar, or even if other people are, I am not. So can you just say a little bit more about what you're referencing? Absolutely. We'd love to. Absolutely. The, um, you know, I'll, I'll take this back to my own journey because you asked me about my own journey to yeah. all of this and how this, how I even literally stumbled upon some of this. But <laughs> I really felt um, early on, you know, that there, I would hear um, as a young Muslim kind of growing up, would hear a lot about the Islamic civilization and all the advances in science and medicine and the humanities. And like most, you know, Muslims, you kind of pat yourself on the back and go, oh, that's excellent. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I had never heard anything about mental health ever. Mm-hmm. And so when I entered the field, you know, I was like, is there even a history here in the first mm-hmm. place? Is there any, is there any grounds for any of this? Um, and what led me actually to the ability, the ability to kind of read the classical primary text from my earlier, you know, training in Islamic sciences actually really helped here because I said, well, I know how to read these books. Let me go ahead and <laughs> try. And they're very, you know, they're classical and difficult to read. But what was phenomenal is, you know, at one point in, in my office here at Stanford, I had, if you walked into my office, I had like manuscripts and books and manuscripts and books. I mean, they just filled up the whole room, hundreds, literally. And we would, you know, do like borrowing from different universities from their libraries and just, you know, manuscripts that were online and not um, available, but they, they wrote like photocopies of them. 
And we did this really massive undertaking of figuring out what did, what does Islam say about mental health and what did the predecessors before us kind of write about this? What were their perceptions? What were their attitudes towards mental health? And what came out of it was this phenomenal discovery of not only was it a very rich history, but things like this, like the, the hospital system, otherwise called the Bimadistan or the Dada Shifa in Arabic and Bimadistan in Persian, literally translating into the place of healing right. or the place for the sick. And it was so beautiful because these hospital systems were first, they were hospital systems. The first thing that showed up was a psychiatric ward within a hospital system. And then they became kind of psychiatric standalone or psych, you know, mental health standalone institutions and very holistic because that's kind of the name of the game in Islam. It's very much a holistic tradition. And so what you find is that you had the doctor, the nurse, you know, today we would call these people the doctor and the nurse and right. as they did back then. But then there are certain names that they had then that only now in modern times do we have names for them. Mm-hmm. Like the person who is the social worker today, mm-hmm. who helps you with the, your affairs, basically once you come into the hospital and then helps you get on your feet and figure out the next steps after you leave the hospital, right, discharge. Yeah. You know, they had that person, they had the dietitian who was very carefully selecting meals and types of food for each and every illness, depending on the psychiatric illness they had. Mm-hmm. You had the person, you know, the, the, the pharmacologist, what today would be a pharmacologist who's literally putting together and compounding medications for the ill, uh-huh. right? And then you had the religious advisor or, or person who would rotate, literally they would rotate just like we do today at the hospital, rotate on, with each and every patient every day, right? But this whole team, this very interdisciplinary team would rotate together. This is what I discovered. And I was just floored because I said to myself, that sounds like Stanford Hospital 2021. <laughs> <laughs> this is happening in like, you know, the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, like my goodness. And nobody talks about this. And every time I'd open up a book of the psychology or psychiatry and they have the first chapters on history, you know, it always goes from an homage to the Greeks and the Romans, and that skips all the way to 18th century, 19th century Europe. Right. Though nothing happened in between. <laughs> no mention of the first psychiatric hospitals or institutions and all the therapies that were created and the medications. Even, even the classification and diagnosis of mental health illnesses that was happening in that era. So I have this paper, a couple papers where, you know, um, it was actually a very interesting story <laughs> of how I even came upon this. So one of those manuscripts I read, um, he was a ninth century scholar named Abu Zaid al-Balkhi. And Balkhi, um, as I was reading this book as a trained psychiatrist, right, reading his ninth century book, I was like, look at this. These chapters are split on certain illnesses like we today as psychiatrists would understand them. You know, the depression and the anxiety. And what really caught my attention was OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Wow. And phobias. And so I went through and I looked at the history books and it says, oh, OCD was discovered in the 19th century. I was like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. We're talking about the ninth century and the 19th century. We're talking about a millennium of a difference, right? And we had, you know, at the Stanford at the time, he's retired now, but he, you know, the forefather of OCD in this country was, you know, literally down the hall from my office. I went and knocked on his door, Dr. Karan, and I said, I discovered this thing. What do you think? You know, and he said, oh, you know, I read everything there is to read about the history. And I've written, he actually has written the books on OCD, right? The main. Uh 
and he starts pulling out all the history that uh, articles that he's written and you know and and, and I, I just finally said can you read Arabic? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, he was just a lovely person, but you know, he kind of stopped and said, no, can you? I said, yes. He said, okay, then go ahead and translate this and let's see what happens. Wow. And so off I went and worked on a kind of a rudimentary translation of this section of the book, came back to him and he was so excited. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. And he just said, you must publish this. And it took us, you know, a while to get this published because when the journal received the, my manuscript, they pushed it back and they said, you know, they, they didn't answer actually for a very long time. We finally inquired and said, you know, I thought for sure they're gonna reject this thing. I'm making some big, big claims. But eventually, eventually they wrote back and they said, you know, your claims were and the word they used was unorthodox. Mm. <laughs> Cause here I am trying to change the whole story of the history of psychology, right? And, you know, and, and they said, so we have to send this out to externally to historians of medicine to read this and basically validate your claims. So they did. And that took a few more months, you know, but when they finally wrote back, they actually said this paper single-handedly overturns the narrative that we have had about the history of psychology, especially as it relates to, there's a paper on OCD and another one on phobias. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's rewriting the narrative. It's fantastic, and we will um, we will link uh, in the write up to the podcast. We'll link to some of these publications, sure thing, sure, uh, so that uh, people can follow up. That's uh, thank you so much for sharing. That's a great story, and congratulations on that research. It's absolutely, absolutely. So that's what I mean by yes, <laughs> the heritage, <laughs> the rich heritage and history here. And a lot of the work we do at my lab is we have a whole line of research just on the history of Islamic understandings of mental health. And a lot of that is primary translations of texts and or sections of that. So that, you know, the rewriting of the of the narrative and the, what I call the reclaiming of the heritage is starting to happen. And I think that's really important. And, and a very necessary uh, indeed. Now, um, in the uh, in the uh, in your various bios that I've uh, read, uh, your work focuses obviously on the mental health of the Muslim community, but also on women's mental health. And um, so I'm curious how how these two intersect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, actually, that's actually where I started the work because I had focused so much and how I ended up in the field in the first place really was my work with women and girls. Um, just as a back note, backdrop kind of note, I, I also direct a nonprofit, a nonprofit for Muslim women and girls here in the Bay Area yeah. called the Rahma Foundation. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do grassroots or in the community is really with women and girls. And my um, advanced training, my fellowship training was actually focused on maternal mental health or women's mental health. And even till today, there's a day of the week that I go to El Camino Women's, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and spend a day in the community kind of working with clinically with women and girls um, in, a, in a embedded mental health embedded within an OB, you know, clinic and obstetrics and gynecology clinic. And I, so I find that really important to me. And the, the very first research study I ever did, ever, I was still a medical student, it was on attitudes and perceptions of mental health to, uh, amongst American Muslim women. Mm -hmm. And this was so interesting. I'll just say this really briefly. This is when I knew I hit some sort of nerve <laughs> in the community. Um, I was, you know, just a young med student and I put together this questionnaire based on all kinds of different questions to figure out attitudes and perception. And the, this is the day before social media and before Facebook, before right. all of those, you know, social. So, you know, all I had was email. That's all that was available. 
And I sent out this, this questionnaire of mine on listservs and different places. And I received back, <laughs> I was shooting for about two or 300 respondents. And that was a lot. People were like, that's a lot. You're really sure you're going to get that many? I got back about 1300 wow. <laughs> in a pre-social media era. Wow. Yeah. It's still the largest um, study on Muslim women and mental health still to today. Wow. Yeah. And it's been amazing. I mean, from that work, we published it. It's, it's you know, we, we you know, have a, a, a couple more branch publications that come out of it. And we also even validated a scale called the Muslims Attitudes and Perceptions to Mental Health Scale, MPAM, um, based on that original study. So, you know, custom tailored to the Muslim community. So yeah, I've, I've uh, this, you know, that's a lot of where my heart has been, <laughs> continues to be, um, is that population. I know um, this is not a, a, a yes, no question because I know the answer. So it's a how question. Can you um, say a little bit more as to how Islamophobia in the United States impacts, um, impacts the mental health of the Muslim community? Sure thing, yes. I mean, this is where, you know, I guess I guess I guess I have to say that I have a couple different buckets of interest. Right. <laughs> you heard about the history, you heard about the woman. Um, Islamophobia would be another one. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're just we're in winter quarter right now in at you know Stanford. And um, for the undergrads, I currently teach a course called uh, Psychology of Xenophobia, mm -hmm. where you know it's it's psych 86Q and it's um uh, my case study or my focus is actually on Islamophobia right. and then the subsequent refugee crisis that we're in right now. And it's been fascinating to see, like now we've had multiple cohorts of Stanford students go through this course. Um, and it's been a really uh, still a very painful discussion every time I teach this course, because especially in the last, you know, four to five years, but even well before that, Islamophobia has been around forever. But we really saw it much more explicit in the last, you know, amongst the last administration. And, you know, you have very explicit things like the Muslim ban, which is still, you know, now it's, you know, the new administration has said will no longer be, but is still, of course, upheld constitutionally. And you have, you know, at the time of the last administration, there were calls for a Muslim registry and all kinds of, you know, and we know that the, the rates of Islamophobic hate crimes rose drastically with the last, you know, two election cycles. And so, you know, with all of that being said, we finally decided, you know, within the community, we know that there are so many anecdotal uh, stories related to how mental, how the mental health of the Muslim community has been affected by Islamophobia. But there was no, back to that word, evidence-based, there was no proof right, of such a thing. So we actually took on an undertaking of publishing the first um, scientific work, actually, that's on, it's actually a, now a book published by Springer in 2019 called Islamophobia and Psychiatry, mm -hmm. where we systematically, through all the various chapters of that book, go through and very carefully document how mm -hmm. Islamophobia has actually really, truly affected the mental health of this community. And then we can extrapolate this to all other communities. There's a parallel book, a sister book to ours um, called, um, you know, Anti-Semitism and, and Psychiatry. Written actually one of the editors is one of the same editors in both books. And the reason that's important is because you realize when one community is affected, all communities can be and will be affected, right? There's a beautiful saying by one, a good friend of mine who's actually gonna be our guest speaker in class next week, Dalia Mugahed, where she um, says, she gives the examples of Muslims in the US are like the canary in the gold mine. They're the first to feel 
and experience the, that very toxic detrimental effect of Islamophobia, mm -hmm. that all the rest will be following. Right. You know, and I think that's what's uh, really important. So if it's helpful to folks listening, that book is, you know, now they're published and available. So if anybody's wondering about evidence-based, <laughs> <laughs> it is there. We're going to come um, and the work a reading list. And what's the name of the class again? Psychology of Xenophobia? That's right. Okay, fantastic. And our Stanford, our Stanford students, listen, listen up. Um, looking at the time, um, I want to ask about COVID because we are still in COVID times and um, I feel that it's relevant to all of us, of course, but especially working in the medical field. Um, so I want to ask you how COVID has impacted your kind of day-to-day -day practice, but also how it has changed your understanding of how we see mental health. I mean, I think, I, I think when people, it's been a year, right? I mean, I think we're all very reflective, very contemplative at, at this point. And I think what most people talk about, um, apart from quips about banana bread and all that, but, but <laughs> real talk, when people do real talk, it's about mental health and, and how we have all struggled with it. But I think how we are also recognizing that we've learned things that we can put into positive, like it's not all bad, even though often it has felt all bad. Uh, anyway, wh what's your take on this? Yeah, you couldn't have put it better. I mean, really, truly that the, the reality of what's happening with COVID is a lot of mental health, um, the, the uptick in mental health needs and um, it, it's so much higher than I've ever seen before. And it only makes sense, right? Of course. And I don't think it's going to go away either. I mean, we hope we hope COVID goes away, but the mental health, you know, sequelae, if you will, to use a medical term here, that the, the aftermath of all of this will still probably be around for a good while. You know, the best way I can answer this for you about the Muslim community is, um, you know, my lab partnered with uh, the Yaqeen Institute, which is another research institute on Muslims and Islam. And together, we've actually been able to how, uh, you know, conduct the largest study on COVID and Muslims to date. It's a global study and it has about 9,000 participants in it. So it's a really large and really large study. And um, the, the results that have come out of it are fascinating. One of the most interesting things to me is that um, compared to, if you look at the Muslim community, community compared to other faith communities or communities of no faith, uh, which by the way, that study was done by the Pew Research Center about a year ago now. So in April of last year, they did a study where they were trying to figure out how are people coping with COVID? What are they holding on to? Right. And one of the most interesting things they found was that many people, even if they had no relationship to a religion or to God or anything like that, they were reporting higher levels of connection to God and by 24%. I mean, that was a much larger number they'd ever found in their, they do yearly studies than they'd ever found before. And they realized that people were needing, this COVID thing was so big that the people were holding on to maybe something bigger than them is what they were finding. So we repeated something similar with the Muslim community. And actually the number there was so interesting because the number was, you know, 75%, right? It was 76%. And it was just amazing to us that that number was so high. There was something about how the faith teaches about resilience and it has very specific teachings, like the one that says, you know, God will not test you with more than you can bear, right? right? And the concept of like, 
you know, the idea that this world that we live in, because Muslims do believe in a hereafter, so this current world that we live in is a world of tests and tribulations, but it's also meant to be one that, you know, kind of purifies you and helps you kind of reach betterment essentially in this world, but then definitely for the hereafter as well. So for many Muslims, that's the frame, the worldview they're working with is a worldview of, okay, this is, you know, literally in Arabic, they call it Dar al-Bala, right? This is the world of tribulation, right? And that's what they categorize the pandemic to be. So the next biggest result that came out of that study, which I think is also fascinating, is that there was a direct correlation between mental health and between people's worldview about COVID. So what we found is this concept part, it's actually part of the anxiety spectrum, uh, this concept called uncertainty intolerance. So the inability to tolerate uncertainty. And we found the people that had higher levels of uncertainty intolerance had the likelihood of developing a clinical, I mean, this is clinical depression, right? By 70%. Wow. Massive, right? Massive, right? And the correlation there is pretty massive to like, a, you know, we're certain, you know, being able to ha handle uncertainty, which is taught by, you know, faith, but also taught through, you know, various therapeutic practice and therapy. And you find that there's such a direct correlation with a clinical mental health condition, right? So there's a whole host of research that now needs to happen after this finding. But I think that really speaks to what's happening, you know, uh, what what faith, what we were able to derive from this is what what is faith doing for a faith community in COVID? And clearly it's helping them cope <laughs> through all of this, right? Thank you so much for um, making time for us today. I, I think uh, it's very clear to our audience that you are a very, a very uh, busy person. I'm just overwhelmed thinking about uh, your schedule. Uh, so I'm incredi incredibly grateful that you were able to fit the SASPOT in. Absolutely. It's been my honor and pleasure to be here with all of you. And thank you again so much for the invitation. Uh, we are going to uh, link uh, uh, in the description to um, either um, Dr. Rani Awad's page or uh, a list of publications. So bear with us while we get that organized. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank Soam Shiva for creating the intro and outro and also similar to for Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.